Tampa Bay's Tan Talk. Entertaining and informative radio for the Sunshine State. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car's been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. Frank doesn't treat me like a tramp. I want you. Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward. They know what it's all about. They live what it's all about. They make pictures like winning that way too. You're a winner. What else? He just wants to win. He doesn't care what the stakes are. How is it between a man and a woman when the man thinks winning is everything and the woman thinks mostly of love? Is where you always come? With men? I understood you. I just wanted you to know I'm not easy. Yes, how is it between them? Free and easy? I'm all yours. Stormy? The way it really is with most any couple? Paul Newman. Joanne Woodward. I can't live two lives. I can't live yours and mine, too. In this kind of game where winning is everything, on that big 500 oval in Indianapolis, you can die any second. like an uptight guitar and the vibrations hit everybody. What would you do? A man's my wife, I'd kill her. You'd kill her, huh? Yeah! Not him, why not both of them? There was this guy high on winning girl high on him and well you take it from there don't you judge me here from BRE Racing and Aeroval Trailers. Listen to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, the best automobile show in the Southeast. Okay, listeners, welcome. You're tuned in 
to Nostalgic Radio Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google, Tantalk1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studios. No, actually, you can't, because I am a the NRC bunker in an undisclosed location somewhere in the southeast part of the United States. Good evening, everybody. Hey, Matt, how you doing? I'm doing fantastic. You're in the bunker. I'm in our disclosed location. I'm in our studios here in Clearwater. Yeah, how about that? Hey, listen, just out of curiosity, how's my voice sound? Because that was, uh, you know, a concern of mine today because I kind of lost my voice there a couple days ago. You Excuse see, me. You still, sound like, you still sound like you, so you're okay. Okay, good, good, good. So good enough to do a radio show, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, I'm really excited because we have a very, very special guest coming on this evening. This gentleman uh, is a legend and uh, in the racing world, and so I'm real tickled to have him on the show. Anyway, what I want to do is I want to say, hey, if you're tuning in, if you uh, want to find out where any of the car shows are, definitely check out flacarshows.com. Big car shows that are coming up. Let's see, what do we got? Well, this week, this week in Pittsburgh is the Pittsburgh Vintage Grand Prix. Now, over the weekend, they had the vintage races. And Pittsburgh, okay, our friends up there, uh, Cobra Automotive, were out there tearing up the racetrack because it was SAC 48, which is the Shelby American Automobile Club. Also, simultaneously going on the same weekend was uh, Elkhart Lake, Road America, a big vintage race going on up there with our friends HSR and everybody. And this coming weekend is the Pittsburgh Grand Prix. Now, in a couple of weeks, three, four weeks, well, actually, you know, there's a couple other things going on, too. If you can make it out to uh, the Bonneville Salt Flats, the... Uh, uh, the, 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 the land speed guys are out there tearing up the salt flats, having a great time. I've never been to that. need to do that one of these days. Of course, I was supposed to go to Pittsburgh. I may haven't decided yet. Still got a couple days or so to decide. Um, <clears throat> also Monterey collector car week is coming up. Monterey collector car week is the third week in August every year. So there's a lot of stuff going on. Vintage races at Laguna Seca. You've got, uh, the works reunion. You've got the legends of the Autobahn. You've got Concorso Italiano, um, just a lot of really, really good stuff going on. And, uh, just, it's, it's like the one event where half the, or two thirds of the car guys in the world just choo, descend on in Monterey County there and, and just have a blast. So pretty amazing stuff. If you've never been there, you need to put it on your bucket list. And then let's see the first weekend in, uh, October, I should say is the odd drain. Concours up in Newport, Rhode Island. Then in the middle of the month, there's Chattanooga um, Concours. It's called Chattanooga Motor Car Festival. And then at the end of the month is Rensport Reunion, also back out in Monterey. So a lot of really, really cool major, major events. And then, of course, in November, we have two big ones. We have SEMA, which is the beginning of the month. And then we have the uh, Muscle Car and Corvette Nationals in Rosemont, uh, Chicago, or Illinois, the Chicago area. And that's, uh, you know, I've been to that event, and I will tell you that, you know, when you go there, I am floored because, I, again, as an appraiser and a car guy and being in the business for since I was a kid, basically, I know a lot about a lot of cars. But, and I have to know a lot about a lot of cars, but I don't know everything there is to know about cars. But when you go to the um, Muscle Car and Corvette Nationals, Probably, I'd be fair to say, same thing if you go to a, a a specific event, like if you go to the SAC, which is a Shelby meant event, or you know something for Corvettes or something for Porsches, you always find experts. But at the Muscle Car and Corvette Nationals, it's obviously you know Fords, General Motors cars, Chrysler Corporation cars, AMC American Motors, but those guys there know everything. I mean, they were arguing over the position. And I forget this was on a 69 Mach 1, 
of a muffler clamp. Now that's pretty, in one hand that's kind of detailed, on the other side it sounds kind of petty. Well, the muffler clamp was turned at a 45 degree angle, should be at a 30 degree angle. Really? How do you know? It went down the assembly line and, you know, some guy hung it and, you know, he's got he's to get these cars down the assembly line. So they don't have time to line everything up just right. Anyway, um, let's see. The other thing I did, I think I mentioned you guys, one of the cars I was appraising here not too long ago was a uh, 71 LT1 Corvette. Kind of a cool car. The, actual, the owner actually did not know they had an LT1. Pretty cool. I had one of those back in the day. Very rare Corvette. One of 1900. Um, built for 1971. Speculation is is probably a third that were built. But now I get it. Now I get to ask you though. Like, sure. what's what's the rarest car you've ever come across aside from that one? Oh wow, that's hard to say. Well, that's not the rare. That's not that rare. I mean, that's kind of relatively common car. Well, rare is when you find something that was a one-off custom-built car. Like the gentleman coming on the night is going to be talking about some really rare one-off cars. And these are cars that could either be a prototype car or experimental car. Uh, or they made two or three of them. And maybe one only exists. Show cars, concept cars, things of that nature. I mean, there's some really, really, really cool stuff out there. All right. So, anyway, and uh, hey, does your clock say 714 right now? Yes, it does. It does. Okay. I just want to make sure we're on the same. We are. We are. Don't worry. I can't see you, but, you know, you can hear me and I can hear you, which is good. Exactly. See, is the technology wonderful? We're doing this through the computer for tonight's show from, now, like I said, that's why I said it's computer only. I'm I'm keeping your undisclosed location at that. You're in the bunker. So we'll leave it at that. (laughs) That works. That works. That works. Okay. And then, uh, of course, one of the other things I'm working on doing the appraisal on is a very rare motorcycle this happens to be uh 2020 super bike that was a uh not the winningest bike of the year but it placed on the podium many 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 times but what makes this bike so special it's a ducati and the fact that it when it left the factory on us on a special request it was acquired and purchased with all the equipment and all the technology that it raced with Ordinarily, if a rare bike, a racing bike, leaves the factory, they take all that stuff off of it because they don't want it because the technology and mechanics very often is proprietary. So naturally, they don't want their competition finding out about it. But this particular bike was acquired by a well-known uh, person, <coughs> and it was in their private collection for a number of years, and now it's being offered um, available to the public. Well. Not really. It's actually being um, uh, it's it's going to be a museum piece. So that's pretty cool because when you and they actually fired the bike up. I mean, pretty bad sounding bike. You know, Ducati twin cylinder, um, just under nine, just under thousand cc's, something like two hundred thirty five, two hundred forty horsepower, whatever, somewhere in that range. But just you know, and, and it comes with the uniform and everything like that. And when you look at the uniform. You know, these guys that ride these MotoGP bikes and these super bikes, you know, these guys lean way over to the point where their knees and their elbows and in some cases their shoulders are actually touching the ground. And this is probably at 180 to 200 miles an hour. Well, maybe not 200 in a straightaway. You know, some of these bikes are pretty fast. But let's just say they're going 100 plus in a turn, you know, on these tires. And you can see this, this the chafing on those little pads. And if they've been worn down too much, they obviously have to replace the pads. But you know, you start you, you you think about that. If you watch MotoGP racing or Superbike racing, 
you know, it's one thing if you're in a, in a race car and you got four corners, basically four tires and wheels at each corner. But when you're on a bike, you got two wheels. There's no margin for error there. You lose one tire, you're down. Um, you go a little too far over, you're down. You slip a little bit, and the guy right beside you is trying to get around the same turn, and you're at, you know, less than a 45 degree angle. You're touching, and it could be interesting, you know, and uh, especially at that high rate of speed. So motorcycle racing that takes, uh, I don't know what how would you call it, just it takes a special person with a lot of nerve. I'll say that would probably be the best thing, best way to describe that. And um, so, but at any rate. So that's kind of like the lowdown right now. I think what we're going to do, because this gentleman coming on the show is, is quite interesting, and we may end up doing a part two on this because uh, every once in a while, like we had Chuck Miller on last week, we did part one and part two. A lot of times these guys, they just have so many great stories, and they're legendary, and and their accomplishments are are incredible. And, uh, you know, and again, we're all, you know, nostalgic getting cars. It's about the fascinating and legendary names in motorsports, music as well. And we'll be getting some music guys here pretty soon again. Um, but there's a lot of car stuff going on right now. So we're going to try to get some of these legends on the show. I want to get them on while they're still out there twisting wrenches, so to speak. And, um, but these guys are incredible. You know, these are the pioneers. A lot of these guys that we have on the show, it's amazing because those are the guys that I was reading about. And if, if, if you know, back in the day when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, and uh, and and their accomplishments are amazing. And 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 fast forward to what we have today, their technology and their development is why we have racing and why it's where it's at to this point. And um and. And then what's also interesting is that the the development, like we'll be talking a little bit about electric cars and how they experimented with it back then. And of course, obviously, back in the 50s and 60s, even at the turn of the centuries, uh, you know, it's not like it's new technology. It's been around for a while. But the the, the problem was not the motors, it's battery technology and, uh, and, and get batteries to last long. And so when we're going to talk about one of his cars that he developed. And it's interesting how they came up with the concept of what they thought would work back then at the time. And, uh, so anyway, on that note, I think Matt's going to go ahead and fire up the stereo, and uh, we're going to get a guest on in a few minutes. So you tune into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I think we had a little Dave Mason all along the Watchtower. Is that what we're playing tonight? It is, Matt? and it's been covered fantastically a couple of times. One by John Denver, and my personal favorite, the Jimi Hendrix cover. Well, that's yeah, that's true. Well, you know what? I can't remember if that's that's he didn't do that song originally, did he? Who, Dave Mason or John Denver? No, uh, uh, Hendrix. Hendrix. No, Hendrix covered it. Hendrix, covered. Co- yeah, Hendrix covered the John Denver version. I didn't know whether or not. No, Bob Dylan did it originally. Oh, it's Bob Dylan. That's it. Okay. That's, I don't yeah, know why Bob. I kept thinking John Denver. No, you're right. It was Bob Dylan. Yeah, right, 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 right. So anyway, but uh, but Mason, his rendition I like actually is one of the better ones. But he was actually playing acoustic guitar on the original recording that you hear on the Jimi Hendrix album. Cool. We had Dave Mason on our radio show way back when, a couple of years ago. But anyway, so let's go ahead and fire that up. And let's play that uh, along the Watchtower. And uh, you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back.
Okay, we're back, and you're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cards. It's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. This gentleman is legendary in the world of racing cars and racing car development. I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening, Bob McKee. Bob, how are you this evening? I'm doing just fine. Thank you. Well, you know what? It, 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 this afternoon, it was just such a surprise and such a treat for you to call me and 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 accept my invitation to come on the radio show this evening. Um, I I don't even know where to begin. You're 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 legacy is 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 amazing i mean your 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 list of accomplishments but what we always typically do on nostalgic radio and cars is when we have guests on for the first time we have them highlight a little bit about their their humble beginnings so we know that your first car was a 29 model a that you hot rodded so why don't you just talk a few minutes about that and then we'll get into some of the really cool stuff well i guess in school i wasn't a particularly good student I was better at playing football and wrestling and things like that and working on cars, and I should have spent more time studying. But anyway, that's the way my life's been, and uh, I always studied hard when it was something involving automobiles or racing and things like that. So uh, I could learn that easily. Uh, English I didn't have such good luck with. <clears throat> All right, so the car thing, when you were younger, was there anybody around you, immediate family or anybody like that, that kind of influenced you in cars, or was it just kind of like hanging out with the guys in the neighborhood and, and said, hey, hot riding's kind of like the thing to do, and let's let's do it? Well, yeah, I in Illinois, you could get a driver's license at 15, and so I got a driver's license when I was 15, and I'd been working on some friends' and neighbors' cars in the neighborhood. So I knew what a carburetor and a starter was, things like that. And uh, as soon as I was 15, I got a driver's license, and I found a Model A pickup truck for $55 um, that still ran, and it had a lot of potential to be a hot rod. So that was a good place to start for a 15-year-old. They were such simple little cars, and you could work on it, keep it running and didn't take much money and gasoline was I think 28 cents a gallon or something in those days uh, so I was in hog heaven uh, and one thing leads to another and as you get better at working on them I decided I was going to put a V8 engine in the Model A instead of the four cylinder and uh, went to the junkyard and bought an engine and uh, came back home and figured out how to put it in the Model A, and that pepped it up a lot. Uh, a bunch of my friends were interested in cars, too, so we all kind of hung out together and worked on them. And, uh, the best way to learn is by working on engines, and in those days they were so simple. I had a carburetor and a crankshaft and pistons and camshaft, and it all work together nowadays it's so complicated with all the electronics it's a lot more difficult the motor that you put in that model a truck was it a flathead or did you put a small block something else in there no actually it was a, a flathead uh ford engine v8 okay. uh later in high school i got a model a coupe that i put a old rocket 88 engine in and boy that really pepped it up uh, that was probably four times the horsepower the thing had originally. So I had to put hydraulic brakes on it and a bunch of things. 
So that's what I drove through high school. Best way to learn is by doing it, I think. Oh, yeah. So when you were younger and you were doing all that hot rod stuff, did you uh, spend time in junkyards getting stuff, or did you buy stuff over the counter? Well, there wasn't much over the counter. Uh, if you wanted something, you went to the junkyard and bought it. Um, you know, as things progressed, more and more stuff was available mail order or through speed shops. When I graduated from high school, I went to work at Ray Erickson's speed shop in Chicago. We lived about 35 miles out from the city, but so it was a pretty good drive every way, both ways. But, uh, you know, there was a lot of parts available down there, and that's what introduced me to stock cars. And so uh, they had a stock car they ran out of there. It was a 54 Hudson. Oh. And so I went to a race and thought, boy, that's pretty neat. I'd like to do more of that. So, uh, Funny thing about racing, once you get started, uh, you keep finding new ways to keep busy at it, and it gets more and more interesting, and the more responsibility you have, the the more fun and interesting it gets. Now, we're, we're talking, what year are we talking about here? Are we talking uh, mid-50s? 1954. Okay, so... If I remember correctly, they were actually racing. Is it was it Wrigley Field? One of the baseball fields actually had a had a circle track in it, right? Well, Soldiers Field in Chicago had a circle track in it. That's where the okay. Bears play football. Okay, um, that was it then. Is that where this Hudson raced? Well, no, we ran uh, IMCA. Uh, they ran all over at mostly state fairs and county fairs in Illinois. Iowa, Nebraska, North Dakota, South Dakota, Minneapolis, or Minnesota, uh, around the Midwest. And, uh, you know, those were new cars. What they were running at Soldier's Field was more jalopy-type cars, just covered together with, you know, whatever parts they could find. Huh. Um, So... Speed shops, like I think, if I remember correctly, during that era was also down south a little ways, a couple states, was Honest Charlie's. Did you buy stuff from them, too, or did you get everything through the, the speed shop that you were at there in Chicago? Most Mostly at the speed shop I was at was Ray Erickson's. Okay. But uh, as things moved on, and a couple of years later, I was out in Nebraska in Lincoln, and Bill Smith had a speed shop there. Uh, called Speedway Motors, and uh, that's grown into a really, really big mail order unit, and uh, they have one of the best car museums in the world with every kind of race car, hot rod, Bonneville car, Indy car, whatever you want to see. There's examples of that there, cutaway engines, and uh, it's beautifully done. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because you know, and, I was, and that's going to lead segue into my next question. And as everybody thinks hot rodding, when you think of hot rodding, particularly in the in the 50s, 40s and 50s, you obviously think of California and the California scene. What people don't, and, and obviously some in Michigan and probably around the Chicago, Indiana area and stuff because of Indy. But people always overlook all the hot rodding and race car stuff and innovation that actually came out of the Midwest, like Kansas, Oklahoma, uh Nebraska, like you said, and 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 even Iowa in some parts of it. So, well, there's uh, some clever people everywhere that are capable of building cars and doing things. <laughs> um, 
after World War II, a lot of the Indy, or almost all of the Indy cars were built in small shops in the Los Angeles area. And there was so much in the way of surplus from military aircraft that you could buy fittings and chrome molly tubing and uh, tanks and whatever you needed. You could buy uh, as virtually scrap to make cars out of, you know, bucket seats out of uh, airplanes. Uh, A lot of the early cars all had those bucket seats that were aluminum that you bought at the surplus store. When you were um, farting, when you, when you were getting a little bit more onto it, when did it become really serious for you? You know, when you when you were in Lincoln, Nebraska, and you're working for the Speedway, is that did did things start getting a little bit more serious as far as your involvement and and focusing more on on building race cars and innovation? Well, yeah, I would say so, uh, but I'd always been serious about it, and. Uh, I was dyslectic as a kid, which I I couldn't read in the third grade, and so they flunked me, and so I had to do third grade over, which, you know, you think, boy, that kid's pretty hopeless, but uh, I just was did everything with the wrong hand, and they showed me how to read and uh, had flashcards. I went to a special school, and they finally straightened me out and got me to read, but my biggest problem was Everything the Dick and Jane books were so <laughs> stupid. I just didn't have any interest in them. If it had been about cars and trucks and machinery, I think I would have read it and been interested. But uh, it, I guess every kid has some sort of problem. That was mine. Anyway, uh, I got through oh. it, and uh, I, I have, uh, I guess, an aptitude for working on cars and machinery and can look at things and figure out how to do them or how to do them better. That's kind of the challenge when you're racing. You're always trying to figure a better way to do whatever it is you're doing. How were you at math? Average. Okay. I wasn't. Did it affect your, I mean, so you didn't really need calculus, trig, and all that other crazy stuff. You just really needed to know how to add and subtract, right? Multiply, divide. Yeah, well, it, when you're figuring out gear ratios and stuff, uh, I had a slide rule, and I could figure out gear ratios and what size tire w- with that gear would go how fast. And, um, you just, when you have an incentive to learn, then you, you learn it, and it's really easy. But if you don't learn and you're not interested, you're really handicapping yourself. I was reading somewhere, or I was listening to one of the interviews, and it was talking about you were pretty good at finding and using and applying a lot of off-the-shelf parts as opposed to custom-building stuff. And probably one of the things I think was kind of interesting is this, and, and I know I'm jumping around here a bit, <clears throat> but was that uh, that transmission you used that was part Borg Warner or, and, and then a little piece here and a little piece there, and it was kind of like a quick change. Um, yes, it was... You know, typical hot rod thing, um, Roger Ward, who had won Indianapolis twice, uh, decided he wanted to go sports car racing. And he bought a Cooper Monaco sports car from Jack Brabham, and he was the world champion in Formula One in Europe. 
So that came over on the airplane with a uh, four-speed transaxle out of the Cooper Formula One car. And Roger wanted us to put an aluminum Buick engine in that, which is a nice little aluminum V8 uh, that had Edelbrock was making a manifold, things like that, to fit that engine. So we built that with the Formula One transaxle, but you couldn't change gears in it very easy. You had to take it all apart. It was difficult to do, and it took time to do. And I'd been working on indie cars before that, so you know, with a quick change gear, you pull the cover off the back and slip another pair of gears in, and you've got the exact ratio you need for that track. So I thought, boy, why don't we just make one like that, and we'll make a a center section that's a casting that will fit Ford, Chevrolet, Oldsmobile, Chrysler, uh, the 427 Ford, every kind of engine made had you could put that bolt pattern in the front of it. We mounted a Borgwater P10 transmission on the back of it and turned it upside down so another shaft could come through it and uh, put a quick change gears on the back of it so you could take that cover off, put in any ratio you wanted for any kind of track from, you know, Bonneville to uh, Riverside, California to... uh, whatever track you were at, have the perfect ratio. And so I I make, got the tooling made to make castings for that. Uh, we sold about 50 of those before we were through. Uh, Carol Shelby used our transaxle in the King Cobras. We used them in the cars that we built. There were a lot of uh, Lotuses, Lolas, and McLarens in this country with Chevy and Ford engines. And there wasn't a good transaxle to use, so they bought them from me, which was fine. But, boy, I was getting tired of building them. Carl <laughs> uh, Haas, uh, who, he, Newman Haas had a race team with IndyCars. He was the importer of Hewland transaxles. And he brought Mike Hewland to my shop one day. And Mike said, I think I'm going to build a big transaxle for these bigger engine cars. And I said, boy, I hope you do. I'm tired of putting these things together. I'll buy them from from you, and uh, I can concentrate on building cars, which I really enjoyed a lot more. So, like the the so the Hewland basically is is like a quick change transaxle. Yeah, you but- can change the ratios in it on all the gears, and it was a nice big beefy. Um, transaxle with a magnesium case and was stout enough that uh, he called it the LG uh, 500 or the LG 600 and it had an oil pump in it and uh, he had bell housings to fit every engine. So I, what I could buy him about as cheap as I could make him, I thought that's a better deal and I'll concentrate on making uh, Can-Am cars, so we kind of got into the more building the car business. Well, how does the Hewland compare to, let's say, like a ZF? Because is a, is a ZF considered a quick change, or is a ZF a sealed unit? No, so the ZF, you have to change the ring and pinion, and, you know, that's a several-hour setup job to do that properly. So if you were running the, the ZF, 
for Zondrad Fabrik in Germany, uh, right. you had to have two or three different transaxles with different ring and pinions in them to have the correct ratio. Okay, so the Gatrogs and the ZFs were far more complicated than uh, a simplified heavy-duty Hewlin then. Yes, at that point, and they're pretty much Hewlin was doing all the gearboxes for Formula One cars, uh, the Can-Am cars. Uh, he started out with a conversion on a Volkswagen Beetle transaxle to fit in the smaller cars. But as everybody got putting uh, American V8s in them, that wasn't adequate. So that's why he decided he was going to build the big one. Let's go back to like the mid-50s. How did, when you were doing the cars in Nebraska, there's a Tiny Lund story. So tell us a little bit how you got hooked up with Tiny Lund and, and, and that kind of brought you into NASCAR or, or stock car racing, right? Yes. Uh, well, I had worked at Ray Erickson's in Chicago, and we put together a 55 Chevrolet. It was a brand-new car then uh, that Marvin Koppel drove. And Marvin drove it about half the season, and Tiny got discharged from the Air Force, came home, and he bought that car from Marvin. And uh, actually, we ran IMCA in all the Midwest state fairs and things like that. And Tiny was a really go get em, uh racer that he just was a racer all the way through. Uh, and did very well. We won a bunch of races in second, third, and um, made enough money to keep going through the summer. Uh, then when I decided I better go to college, I I went to college for uh, one semester, and he took that Chevrolet down south in NASCAR and got it upside down and wadded it up so it would probably fit under your your desk, it was pretty small when he got through tumbling around it and, and broke his arm. And when he uh, got healed up from that, he said, Bob, what, what car should we build next? And I said, well, I think a Pontiac would be a good one. It's kind of like the Chevrolet, only a little bigger, uh, a little more cubic inches, probably run a little better. Pontiac wasn't really involved in racing at that time, Chevrolet was quite a bit of stuff out the back door and under the table, and uh, <laughs> Chevys were pretty popular. Anyway, we ran the Pontiac, and we did fairly well with it. Tiny had financed the car through a, a finance company in Lincoln, Nebraska, <laughs> and uh, he had missed a few payments on it. I financed a station wagon, a green Chevy station wagon that we could tow it with. So that was our transportation and tow vehicle. But Tiny had missed some payments on his stock car. And the guy came down and said, I came here to take this back. You missed some payments. And we said, well, let us run the race tonight. And if we make some money, we could make all those payments. And uh, said, okay, I'll I'll watch the race, and when it's over, I'll take it. Huh. And uh, anyway, uh, Tiny hit the fence and tore the drive shaft out, and the cross member out from underneath it. And 
I said, I can't take it back all torn up like that. So I said, well, why don't we, uh, we'll take it back and we'll fix it. And then you can pick it up after the next race. So the next race was in Hickory and, uh, we didn't make, make enough money to make the payments. And so at Hickory picked it up and it disappeared back to Lincoln. So that put Tiny and I out of the race business temporarily. <laughs> you're, you're talking Hickory, North Carolina now? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, we, when you were in the stock car business in those days, you, you saw a lot of the country and a lot of it for a, a kid from Chicago. Uh, was a whole different culture with the boonshiders and bootleggers and several of the race drivers were well-known bootleggers. It was uh, quite a change in uh, what I thought the world was about. Well, let me ask you this. Now, that's an interesting uh, 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 subject there. So, when you're down, so you're a uh, you know basic guy from the from the Midwest. You come down here to you know to to the southeast, so to speak. And what were the people like? Were they receptive to you? Were they, was it, what made them different? Was it just their style of driving, their attitude, um, the way they built cars, the way they may have cheated a little bit, you know, things like that? Or, or you know, what, 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 was, what, was, what did you find that was so interesting, so different about them? Well, all of the above. Uh, all of the above, okay. Uh, we went down there and they had a rule book you know, it was only about 12 pages long in those days. Yeah. So we built it to, to fit the rule book as well as we could. But uh, a lot of them were doing a lot of cheating, running some pretty hot camshafts in them and um, everything they could do to make them run faster. Uh, you were only supposed to change things for safety reasons, but... Uh, if it would run faster, uh, they'd sneak that in there. All the dirt tracks, all the tracks we ran on, except Darlington, were dirt tracks. Oh. So uh, Tiny loved dirt tracks because that's what he ran on in Iowa and Nebraska and Illinois, uh, half miles. But down there, they were bigger tracks, uh, but they were dirt. And so... You had to build a pretty stout car to live through a 100 or 150-mile race on a dirt track where the corners all dig out and gets rough and you're banging around in the corners and they're running into each other. It's, it kept a, I was the only guy working on the car, and Tiny would help me when I needed help. But um, that was a lot of work for one kid to do with the races. You know, you'd have to work on it build engines and make transmissions and, you know, modify the rear axle or whatever needed to happen to keep the thing running and from week to week and uh, try and make enough money to make the next race. So it was, uh, for a 20-year-old kid, it was a pretty, pretty jumping in the deep end of the pool. Did you Were you able to share the shop with anybody or did you have to do everything out of the back of the station wagon? I did it out of the back of the station wagon, but when we'd get to a town where the racetrack was, yeah. we'd go to the car dealer, in this case the Pontiac dealer, and ask if we could use a corner of his garage to work on the car, and we knew they had parts there on the parts shelf that would 
fit what we needed. And uh, we would paint their name on the quarter panel or something to pay them back for the use of the shop. And that usually worked and sometimes would get a couple of hundred dollars extra from them too. And uh, that kept us on the road. Interesting. So was it like, uh, how many times a week would you race? I mean, was it like every weekend and you're on the road living out of a... Yeah, every weekend. And every weekend. Right? Okay. And sometimes Tiny would find a modified car or something else he could run during the week at, say, a county fair or something. So we tried to keep busy. and uh, I did work on a few of the bootleg cars because they were running Pontiacs for bootlegging and... Uh, you know, it was a fairly big car, and, but they would, actually, the, the carburetor, it had dual carburetors on it, and turning left on with the carburetor the way they were built, uh, it would run out of fuel in the corners. So we ended up uh, epoxying some baffles in the carburetor that took care of that problem, and the bootleggers noticed that we could run through left-hand corners. And so they started coming around and asking if I'd fix their carburetors so that they wouldn't stall out in the corner. And if you got caught with a load of whiskey, they confiscated the car and the load of whiskey, and you were <laughs> two years in jail. So they weren't happy about that. Interesting, interesting. So uh, how about some names? How, who were some of the, the old-timers that you uh, kind of you know, crossed paths with back in the day? Anybody notable? All of them. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was a, about 35 or 40 guys, and I'd say a third of them were bootleggers when they weren't, <laughs> when they weren't uh, racing. And, you know, like Junior Johnson said, it was more fun hauling whiskey, and you could make a lot more money in one night than you could by winning the race on Sunday afternoon. Um but he spent some time in in the bootlegger in the prison. <laughs> yeah. All right. So was Tiny, was he hard on equipment? Well, they said he could break an anvil with a rubber hammer. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, so, yeah, well, but he, he calmed down quite a bit because, you know, when you run out of money to buy hamburgers, uh, you get pretty serious about trying to finish it get some little bit of prize buddy to get gas to get home and a hamburger. <laughs> True. Tell us a story about him and Marvin Ponch. Well, uh, after our Pontiac went away, uh, I came back and I worked for the Pontiac factory stock car team. They were in Indianapolis, but Tiny stayed down south and bought a fish camp out there. And, he was running anything and everything he could get a ride in. And uh, he was at Daytona before the race. And Marvin Ponch was driving uh, a Maserati owned by Briggs Cunningham. You know, he he was uh, a sailor. He won the America's Cup race in a sailboat. He was a very wealthy man. And... Uh, he had a bunch of sports cars, and Ponch was driving the Maserati for him, uh, got upside down and caught on fire, and Tiny and some Firestone tire guys were standing in the infield fence, and 
Marvin got upside down right in front of him. And uh, they all jumped the fence and uh, turned the car right side up and, and got Marvin out of it before he burned up. And But he was, you know, some broken bones and um, burned a little bit. Uh, not in any shape to drive a race car in the Daytona race. And so they asked Marvin, who should drive your car since you're hurt? He said, well, Tiny saved my life. Why don't you let him drive it? And uh, like a fairy tale, he he did drive it in the Daytona 500, won the Daytona 500, and uh, reinvigorated his career. Was there a story once about Mar uh, about um, Tiny getting in some sports car, some race? I'm not sure if it was Sebring or Daytona or someplace like that, and he got in some somebody's race car, sports car, basically, and went a few laps and tore up the transmission. Was there a story about that? Does that ring a bell? Well, he wasn't that much of a sporty car driver. Uh, he was a big boy, wasn't he? He liked driving on the dirt and sliding around. Okay. Anyway, um, yeah, because you said he was he was a pretty good-sized guy. He was like a big, giant teddy bear, wasn't he? Yes. Uh, weighed 275 pounds, and he was about six foot three. Um, I felt like a midget next to him. <laughs> so, all right. So then you worked for Pontiac uh, and the and and on the factory Pontiac NASCAR team. Then, yes. So and where all we the went down, we went down uh, with two Pontiacs um, in '57, I think it was. Cotton Owens won the Daytona 500. Uh, one of the last ones on the beach, where you ran down Highway One, and then you made a U-turn, came back on the beach. Mm -hmm. And Cotton Owens uh, ended up winning that race. Uh, our other car, Benjo Matthews, uh, was fast time and was on the pole. So we felt pretty good about that. And, uh, with Cotton winning the race, uh, he was really a good driver from uh, Spartansburg. Um, so that made it all worthwhile. So how long were you involved with the NASCAR before you switched over to sports cars? Well, it, it, a bunch of things happened. Uh, I I really wanted to work on Indianapolis cars because you're not so restricted by rules on what parts are, how they're made, where they're made. Uh, you're supposed to be stock cars. Um uh, Indy cars were all hand-built, beautiful machines. And, um, the Pontiac factory stock car team was stationed in, in Indianapolis. So I got to meet a bunch of the Indy car drivers there. And we we had two cars. would run two in NASCAR. would run them again in AAA or USAC. And so... I got to meet more and more IndyCar drivers. I thought, this is really more what I want to do. And there's more skill involved in fabricating the cars and uh, figuring them out. So I, I thought that's what I wanted to do. I ended up working for quite a few of the Indy drivers. Uh, I got drafted in the Army and uh, was stationed in Germany. 
and went down to the Monza Race of Two Worlds. And uh, I had been working for A.J. Watson that built some of the best roadster Indy cars, and uh, I had worked for him before I got drafted. And uh, when I went to Monza, he said, do you want to help us on the car? And I said, yeah, sure. So uh, I spent about a week and a half in Monza, Italy, and Jim Rathman was driving the car. And uh, luckily, he won the race. It was done in three heats. So we had an hour between the different heats to refuel them, change the tires on them, weld up the frame or whatever needed to be done to run the next heat. But it was a really, really rough track. It's concrete with a high, high bank. And so anyway, Jim averaged 158 miles an hour for the 500 miles, which was pretty quick in those days. This was 1958. I I was in the Army in Germany when I got... Um, my two years in, I came back, and uh, Jim's brother, Dick Rathman, had an Indy car. It was a Watson Roadster for me to take care of, and so I had that, and I had to figure out a place to work on it before the 500, and uh, so I had to set up a little shop and a dog kennel <laughs> and, and uh, worked on that car, and in racing and in most things in life, it seems that you do something and you try and do it well, and the next thing comes along and the next thing, and you never know where you're going to end up, but uh, you end up somewhere, and if you're having fun and working hard, you're probably going to do all right. Well, those sound like some pretty amazing stories. Now, Bob, we are just about up against the clock, but this is what I'd like to do, and I mentioned this to you earlier because you're such a fascinating guy, and we didn't even touch the surface hardly so because we didn't talk about some of the other the, the the McKee cars that you built you know one through the Mark one two three all the way up to ten we didn't talk about the Helmet yet the Texas or the the, the experimental um, turbine car so what I'd like to do is I'd like to invite you back next week so we can continue with part two with Bob McKee are you up for that yeah I'm up for that so that's Super. next next Tuesday next Tuesday same time uh, between seven and eight p.m. Here on the Tan Talk Radio Network, sure. All right. Well, uh, let me write that down on my calendar. And... Just a second here. <laughs> yeah, I don't see any problem with that. Uh... So those are great stories, and you know what? I mean, it's like it's like when you talk, tell some of these stories, and you and you mention some of those names. I mean, I can relate to a lot of those. Uh, Junior Johnson, in particular, because we used to see him at uh, Amelia Island every so often. Super nice guy, very low key, mild mannered guy with this amazing history, like yourself. So you know, um, so I appreciate appreciate that and appreciate the conversation. So definitely look forward to having you on the show next week. Um, just out of curiosity, if people want to find out more about you, how would they go about doing it? Oh, boy. Uh, Do you have a website you, or anything like that? No, I don't have a website, but uh, if you look up Jay Leno's Garage right. slash Helmet Turban, I was out there about a month ago, and he did a show on our turban car. And I, also, you can Google Helmet Turban Car and uh, Bob McKee Race Cars. Uh, there's quite a bit of stuff on that, and uh, we built a lot of electric cars for different people. Uh, had a fun career, and it's been 
a fun challenge. Well, Bob, I want to thank you, and we look forward to having you on the show next week. Thank you very much. Appreciate okay. it. And, uh, it's going to be fun. Thanks, Robert. Hey, I want to thank my... Thank you. I want to thank my special guest, Bob McKee. Look forward to uh, part two next week. Uh, Same bad time, same bad station. And big shout out to my friends over there at Midway Shoe Repair. If you need your shoes done, because I just healed my soles, 727-581-2166. Those guys are really great. They do a great job. Not too often you find people to fix shoes anymore. But anyway, in the meantime, everybody, don't forget to check us out every every Tuesday between 7 and 8 p.m. on the the Tide Talk Radio Network. I'm going to see you guys in so many cars. Stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family.